Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Psalm 34? Psalm 34. We've been looking at the Psalms this summer, and as we've been looking at them, we've been realizing more and more what the Psalms were intended to be. Like all of the Bible, they are God-breathed words that God has given to reveal Himself to us. But what makes the Psalms unique is that they are not just words from God, they are also words to God. They are prayers prayed to God and songs sung to God. Martin Luther, the German reformer, says that the Psalms are like the little letters or speeches that a teacher gives to their students that are a kind of guide to teach them how to write and speak. And that's a really helpful picture of what the Psalms are for us. They are the building blocks, like the ABCs or a grammar book. They give us the categories and the words and the ideas of prayer and song to God. They aren't merely meant to be repeated back to God, though that's a great start, but they are meant to teach us how to talk. The Psalms shape the grammar of the Christian life. And even though the Psalms are all comprised in a particular context or circumstance, they often surprise us. We wouldn't think that a Psalm in which we are confessing our sin and crying to God for mercy would suddenly turn to talking about evangelism. We wouldn't think that a Psalm talking about going through the valley of suffering would then talk about a victory feast in the presence of your enemies. But they do. The Psalms surprise us. And today, we meet another surprise. Because Psalm 34 is a psalm about suffering and embarrassment and unmet expectations. And in it, David reflects on what it means to live the good life. And in reflecting on that question, what is the good life? Where is the good life to be found? He opens up to us the very heart of the Christian gospel. That it's through weakness that we find the goodness of the Lord. That it's through embarrassment and humility that we are finally able to glory in God. It's through suffering that God shows us the good life. In other words, the gospel shows us that the crown of life only comes through the cross of suffering. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 34 today. But before we look at God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Would you all pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from Your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today with the true bread from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would cause us to long for Christ, to trust in Him and to follow Him in true obedience as we now hear your holy word. Amen. This is Psalm 34 of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this psalm this morning, we're going to start in the middle which I believe is the core of this psalm, looking at what it means to desire the good life. And then we're going to work our way through this psalm, beginning with the circumstances of suffering. And then the next two points, if you're following along in the outline, ought to be flipped. The third point is what suffering does to the godly. And then finally, we'll look... I'm sorry, the third point is the true good life. And then finally, we'll look at what suffering does to the godly. But at the heart of this psalm, is the question in verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who out there, David says, wants to live and wants to live many days? Who wants good things to happen to them in their life? Which of you is seeking the good life? Are you the kind of person who wants good things? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to live a fulfilled and abundant life? Think about your life for a second. Think about the things you do, the hours you put in at work or school, the relationships you pursue, the things you try to build. Do you long to one day look around And be able to say, this is it. I've made it to that good life everyone was talking about. This is the life that I've been longing for. 
Is that what you desire? Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and philosopher in the 17th century. And Pascal says that that desire, that seeking of happiness, is ingrained in all of us. This is what he says. All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this same end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, but attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Pascal says that you and I seeking happiness, seeking the good life, is unavoidable. It's the default of the human heart that God has created in us. We all do it. He says that that desire is the motive of every one of our actions, but that we choose different things based on our different views of what will make us most happy. And in this psalm, David says the same thing Pascal says, but in question form. What man is there? What woman is there who desires life and loves many days that they may see good? The expected answer to the question is everyone. Who doesn't desire the good life? Every one of us in here hopes for an abundant life, a life of happiness, a life filled with good things. So what's the problem? If we all want that, why can't we get it? Why is the good life so elusive? What are the obstacles to this good life we are all looking for? Why is it that even though all of us would say that we want to live long and prosper, as it were, we can't? I'm going to ask you to reflect a little bit more on your own life. Because in this psalm, David teaches us something about that good life, but we're not going to be able to hear it until we think about the way that we pursue that good life in our own lives. There are two key actions we take in living the good life, in seeking out the good life. The two actions are avoiding and pursuing. Avoiding and pursuing. Or to put it another way, running away from something and running toward something else. And you will know what you think the good life is and what you think the obstacles to the good life are by what you avoid and by what you pursue in this life. So think on your life again for a minute. What are the things that you spend your time and energy and even your money trying to avoid? Trying to make sure you don't experience. And then secondly, what do you pursue? What is it that you are seeking in your life? On first glance at this psalm, it can look like David is just talking about the good life in verses 12 to 14. It's an odd bit of wisdom in the middle that's kind of shoved in in the midst of a normal psalm. But when you look at this psalm, 
and you see the themes that run through it, and you think on its circumstances, you realize that the whole psalm is tied to this one question in the middle. This question of the good life. What are you seeking, and what are you avoiding? And assumed in this psalm is that one option, perhaps the most popular option, that people give as the obstacle to the good life is suffering. What is it that keeps me from being happy? What is it that keeps me away from the good life? It's suffering, or affliction, or pain. There's a business that I often drive past on my way to work that has a sign out front that usually has clever messages on it. But for a while, every time I passed the sign, the message said, pain is the thief of joy. That's one option for why we don't give the good life, why we don't live the good life. Because the presence of pain and suffering in our lives. And in this psalm, David addresses how suffering relates to the good life. So we're going to look through this psalm, beginning with the circumstances of suffering, and then looking at what the true good life is, and then ending with what does suffering do to the godly. This psalm actually begins in the context of suffering. The title of the psalm, it's those small caps at the top of the psalm, says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And we know what story this is talking about in the life of David. This is from 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. If you remember the flow of 1 Samuel, you remember what is going on with David in this story. It started when the nation of Israel asked God for a king. And so God gave them King Saul. Saul turned out to be the kind of king who listens to the people and doesn't listen to the voice of God. So God anoints a new king, a little runt shepherd boy named David. So David's anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, but he doesn't become king for a long time. The story, that famous story of David slaying the giant Goliath, is after David is anointed king. And after that, Saul begins to be jealous of David. And it starts small at first, but before long, Saul is chasing David around Israel, trying to kill him. And this really all starts at the end of 1 Samuel 20. We're not exactly sure how long David is on the run from Saul, but it's anywhere from 8 years to 15 years that he is running around trying to flee for his life. David knows that he is God's anointed king, and instead of sitting on the throne, he is running to try to save his life. So the circumstances of this psalm, found in 1 Samuel 21, are at the very beginning of this time of David running for his life. And the second place he runs to is the city of Gath, which is one of the cities of the Philistines. He goes there thinking that he can hide out and get away from Saul. But Gath just happens to be the city that Goliath was from. And the people recognize who David is when he comes. And David is afraid of the king of Gath, whose name is Achish, or Abimelech. 
But listen to what David does to get out of this pickle. This is 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And we hear that and we think it's funny. David is pretty witty to come up with something like that to save his life. But think about what David is going through. He is the God-appointed king of Israel. He ought to be sitting on the throne and living in luxury. But instead, he's on the run, fearing for his life. When others see him, they ought to honor him and revere him as king. But instead, he has to pretend to be insane so that he can be mocked and dismissed as a madman. This is not a high point in David's life. This is the beginning of a season of intense suffering And this particular moment is a moment of fear, and then on top of that, shame and embarrassment. This is the context for a psalm that talks about the good life. And it's in that place that we hear this prayer from King David. Listen to the words of David again, knowing his situation. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 again. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What an amazing prayer. In the midst of of suffering and fear and shame. David rejoices in the Lord. But I want to flag something right away that we could easily misunderstand. It's possible, if we're listening to this psalm in a particular way, that we can think that David is affirming what that sign that I drove by said. Pain is the thief of joy. It's possible that we could think he is affirming that view that says that suffering is the real obstacle to the good life. And the reason is because of how much he praises God for his deliverance from suffering. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6 says that the Lord saved him out of all his troubles. And then verse 10 makes the positive statement. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So you might think David agrees that suffering is the enemy, 
And so he's thankful that the Lord took away his suffering. He even rejoices in the good life the Lord has given him. Those who fear the Lord have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But we need to pay close attention to the words of the psalm. David starts with praise in verse 1, and he does eventually get to the Lord's deliverance. But notice the emphasis he has from the beginning. He says, He will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Having just come through pain and fear and distress, David's point is that even in the midst of that, he shall praise the Lord at all times, continually. As for the claims he makes that those who fear the Lord have no lack, that they lack no good thing, think about everything that David is lacking in this moment. He's been driven away from his home and his family. The Lord promised that he would be king and he's not sitting on a throne. He's running from town to town, scared for his life. In the section right before this, David has to eat the holy bread in the temple because he and his men don't have any food. And this isn't for a short season. As I said earlier, this is anywhere from 8 to 15 years that David is on the run like this. David must have a different definition of lack than the rest of us have. When he says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, he must intend good thing to mean something different than first, seeks the eye, first meets the eye. And that is exactly the point of this psalm. David's idea of the good life is not simply an avoidance of suffering or the pursuit of comfort. And notice, this isn't just about David personally. In the latter half of the psalm, he turns to talking about all of the godly, all those who trust in the Lord. And in verse 19, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions. The Christian life is not an avoidance of pain. David's rejoicing isn't about him avoiding affliction. There is comfort that the Lord delivers His people out of all those afflictions, but the afflictions still happen. And we see this more than anywhere else in Jesus. As we've said from the beginning, the Psalms are fundamentally the Psalms of Jesus. David is not just some person who turned out to be a really great hymn writer. He's the King of God's people, the Anointed One of God. And so he writes as that King. So when the true king, David's son, Jesus, comes to this world, he takes his place as the true singer of these psalms. And nowhere else do we see the normal presence of suffering more than in the life of Jesus. Though he was the king of heaven, he took on human weakness. He was poor. He lacked physical comforts. He tells us that he had no place to lay his head. He was mocked and ridiculed even by his family, who said at one point that he was out of his mind. And then at the end of his life, which did not see long days, he was beaten, 
spat upon, and killed on a cross. Man of sorrows is the name that Isaiah gives to our Lord. And what we see in the rest of the New Testament is what Jesus told His disciples would happen. That like Him, we too would suffer. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is not a small teaching of the Bible. Everyone in this world suffers. And the good news of the Christian life is not that you will avoid suffering. No Christians, just like the Christ they follow, will suffer. So what's going on then with this question of the good life? Why is David asking us if we desire long life and seek good if he's just going to tell us that suffering is the norm? Is he steering us down the wrong path? No. No, because David knows that there is something worse than suffering. The greatest obstacle to the good life is not suffering. The greatest obstacle to the good life is sin. David calls it evil in verses 13 and 14, but it's clear that the evil he is talking about is our own sin. He says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And then he gives the answer. This is what you should do if you desire the good life. Verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you see how profound David's answer is? Because this is the opposite of the way that the world answers this question. The way that the unbelieving world and our sinful hearts say that you should live if you want to live the good life is that you should do everything you can to avoid suffering, to avoid pain, to turn away from difficulty. And what is it that we typically do in order to do that? We sin. We want to avoid the pain that comes from paying the government an extra $6,000. So you lie on your taxes. You want to avoid the difficulty of disappointing your boss or your friend, or your spouse. So you tell a twisted version of the truth that makes you look better. You want to avoid the suffering of unmet sexual desires. So you go ahead and meet them with your boyfriend, or pornography, or someone other than your spouse. You want to avoid the pain of people liking your classmate better than they like you. So you slander her and make sure everyone knows the worst things about her. We sin to avoid suffering. We sin because we think it will bring us the good life. This has been the false promise of sin ever since the serpent in the Garden of Eden. That there is something outside of God's will that will bring you joy and help you to avoid pain. If you just reach out and grab it, Satan says, you will have that good life that you've always been looking for. 
Jesus exposes the lie of Satan. He says in John 10, the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Write that one on your doorposts and bind it to your forehead. Abundant life, the good life is not found outside of Jesus. No, the good life is found in Jesus. And so what does David say we must avoid if we want the good life? Not suffering, but evil. Sin. Turn away from evil. And then he tells us what we must pursue. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the proverbial part of this psalm, but the whole rest of the psalm screams to us what that means. What might we turn to if we turn away from evil? There's only one true option. It's the Lord. Where can you go when you turn away from sin? Only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true good. He is the end point, the destination, the chief end of that pursuit of the good life. Verse 8 says this better than perhaps any verse in all the Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the one who takes refuge in Him. David is daring you to compare everything else to the goodness of God. The play on the word good in this psalm is intentional. There are plenty of things in this world that are good. They are the good gifts of God to His creation. Food and nature and children and marriage and friendship and rest and laughter. All of these are good things. But none of them is the true good. The ultimate good. They are all derivative goods. David is daring you to compare all of those things to the goodness of the triune God. Taste and see. This is not a call to acknowledge that God exists or even to know particular things about Him. This is a call to experience God, to commune with God, to truly know God, to pray to Him, to hear from His Word, to trust in Him, to obey Him, to worship Him. This is what all those parallel phrases in the psalm are talking about. To fear the Lord is not to be afraid of Him and shrink back. It's to come to Him with a trembling joy. To come to Him in worship and love and awe. To take refuge in Him and to cry out to Him and to seek Him are all ways of describing the Christian's communion with God. This is how you experience God. Do all that, He says, and you will see that He is the ultimate good. God Himself, not something other than Him, not something outside of Him, is the true pursuit of the good life. Having God is having the good life. Do you do this? Is your life built on pursuing God and avoiding everything that would keep you from God? Or is it built on pursuing pleasure, or fame, 
or comfort and avoiding hard things. Christians are not immune from these temptations. You can say that you trust in Jesus, but seek your true joy in a different version of the good life. Can you say that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If so, do you continue to taste and see Him? If not, come to Him. The invitation is open. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So the good life isn't about avoiding suffering and pursuing comfort or cheap pleasure. It's about avoiding sin and seeking the Lord in whom abundant life is found. That is the true good life. That is the life that results in blessing and radiance and true goodness. But if that's the case, then why all this conversation about suffering in this psalm? Why does David go on and on about suffering? Why is suffering so front and center in this psalm? The answer is the counterintuitive, not very fun news, that suffering actually helps us to turn away from evil and to pursue God. Suffering for the Christian is a tool in the hand of God that drives us to God. The key to understanding this is seeing that pride and self-sufficiency are at the root of all sin. Again, this was the lie in the Garden of Eden. God is holding out on you. You don't need Him. If you just do this, you can be like God. That's the lie of sin. And what suffering does for someone addicted to that way of thinking is it crushes us. It humbles us. David shows this most clearly in verse 2. Remember what has just happened. He is on the run for his life and had to act insane to save himself. Verse 2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. All of our souls have a sinful tendency to do a lot of boasting about ourselves to swell up with our own pride. Suffering, embarrassment, pain, tend to show us how weak and helpless we really are. They drive us away from ourselves. But it's so important to see what they drive us to. Christian suffering drives us away from ourselves, and it drives us to God. Verse 5, those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is said by a man who had spit running down his face just before he wrote this. David's suffering drove him away from himself and drove him to the joy and goodness of God. It must be said, because David says it, that this is not how suffering functions for everyone. The wicked in the Psalms are those who refuse to trust in God. They aren't merely sinners. Every one of us is a sinner who deserves condemnation. The wicked in the Psalms are sinners who cling to their own self-sufficiency and refuse to seek refuge in God. The righteous aren't the perfect. They are those who humble themselves and come to God. 
Suffering comes on both the wicked and the righteous. But David tells us that it does two opposite things. It has two opposite results in those people. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Suffering will slay the wicked, those who refuse to trust in God. It's a precursor for them of their condemnation for refusing to humble themselves and find refuge in God. But suffering will sharpen the righteous. It's painful, but it will strip away your pride and your self-sufficiency and your tendency to long for other things more than God. And in your emptiness, it will drive you to the one who is truly good. This is why you read those strange passages in the New Testament that talk about rejoicing in your suffering. Romans 5, 3-5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are a Christian, your suffering drives away all the false hopes and false joys and false good lives until only one thing is left for you to cling to. That is why Paul says we can rejoice in our sufferings. Not because suffering itself is good. No, it is a result of sin that will be eradicated from this world one day. No more pain. No more sorrow. But right now, it is a tool in the hand of your loving Father to purify your trust in Him and scrape away the dross of false hopes. He will take care of you in the midst of your suffering. David says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You will not lack anything that is truly good. Famous hymn writer John Newton says it this way, All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. And the one thing that is more needful than anything else is Jesus Christ. There is nothing more needful, nothing that will truly satisfy, nothing can be your refuge other than Jesus. Christian, your suffering will not bring condemnation because Jesus took your condemnation upon Himself. Your pain is not a sign of God's judgment because His judgment for you fell on His Son. So the call of suffering now is a call to Jesus to see your all in Him, to come to Him for salvation and forgiveness and abundant life. If you are one of those people David is talking about who seek the good life, then the call of this psalm is to come to Jesus. Taste and see that He is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Would you all pray with me?
Father, we come to you as weak and weary sinners who know that we do not see and assess rightly. And so we are drawn to so many other things than Jesus. We pray that you would purify us. We pray that you would use whatever tools you see fit, even the tool of suffering, to make us cling to Jesus and to him alone because he is our life and our salvation and our hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.